All right, so today I made the sermon extra long because I'm trying to wait out Tony. I need Tony to be here before today ends because I want Tony to do, uh, our brother Jerry is being sent off today. I really want Tony to be here. So we're going we're gonna to try to uh, keep this going, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So happy Lord's Day. Um, we're currently in a sermon series called Rhythms of Relationships. And as Paul mentioned last week, the hope of these sermons are that you guys would understand what does it mean to be a member of this church, right? We're all gearing up for December 17. December 17, we're going to have you guys renew your memberships. We're going to have a membership quorum. And basically what we're saying is, if I tell anyone, if I look to God and I ask, who is TLC, right, who is the church? If you're a member of this church, your name is on that list, right, of 87, 95, or whoever, many people, right? You being a member of this church is formalizing your guys' commitment to one another, to Christ, and allowing people to commit to you, right? In the same way, yesterday we had a wedding, right, and Kevin and Priscilla formalized their relationship to one another by um, sharing their vows, um, entering into marriage. In the same way, we're looking to formalize our relationships to one another and to Christ through membership. And Pastor Paul last week mentioned that in order to be a member of TLC, the big thing that we need you guys to know is we need you guys to know sin. Right? We need you guys to understand that sin alienates us from God, alienates us from one another, and alienates us even from ourselves. Right? Sin is destructive, it's heinous, um, but Christ became man destroyed all walls of hostility so that we can be reconciled to him in a relationship, right? The grace of God tastes sweeter when we recognize sin is bitter. Kind of like how when you brush your teeth and you drink orange juice, it tastes really disgusting and strong, right? The same way sin being bitter makes Christ's grace seem a lot more sweeter. And so this week, the, the thing we need you guys to know in order to be a member of TLC is the so what, right? How can we receive the salvation? How can we enter into this relationship with God? If God destroyed all walls of hostility, if um, God provided us an avenue for us to be saved, how can we enter into this relationship? Right. How do we become a Christian? How can we enjoy the finished work of Christ? And that comes to us from James chapter 2. So at this time, I'm going to turn with me to James chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to the end of 26, 19 to the end of 26, and it reads, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless, was it not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by just faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, 
So faith without deeds is dead. The second passage we're going to be reading from is Second uh, Corinthians 7, 8 through 12. Verses 8 through 12. And it reads, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proven yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you can see for yourselves how devoted to us you were. Let's pray. Father, we gather here together because we recognize that you're a good God, that sin alienated us, and sin is obvious. Uh, We don't need to look too far to see the destructive effects of sin. We see that it separates us from not only you, but from one another. That when we just look in our own hearts, we see that sin kills. We see adultery, hatred, gossip. We see wicked things. And yet you became flesh to die on the cross so that you can provide us a way, provide us a way to put this sin to death and to come to you as a new creation with a new spirit and a new heart. So I pray, Lord, that as we look into your word today, that your word may examine us. If there's anyone here who is not reconciled to you, if there's anyone here who falsely believes that they're saved, that you may convict their hearts, that your word may bring them to repentance and faith, and that they may turn to you, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so what makes a Christian? Right? How can we be saved? How can we enter into this relationship with God? How can we be reconciled to our creator? How do we know we have salvation? Luckily, we don't have to look too far for this. It's not like where's Waldo throughout the Bible. God is very clear. Um, We just look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the epistles. It's clear, right? In Mark 1, 15, Christ's first words when he steps into ministry is, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news, right? Believe in the gospel. And so, In order to be reconciled with Christ, in order to have a relationship with him, you need two things, pretty clear, faith and repentance. And the saving kind of response for a Christian are these two things, right? Just going to church doesn't save you. Salvation doesn't work like osmosis, right? Just because you're in church week in and week out doesn't mean that you're saved. Just like how if you're in a room with someone for a decade and you never talk to them, it doesn't mean you have a relationship with them. Or if you know everything about a celebrity, you know all their facts, right, but you never talk to them, it doesn't mean that if you see them in the street, you guys have a relationship, right? Just going to church doesn't save you. Being nice to your neighbors doesn't save you, even though those are good things. Being a good person doesn't save you. 
right? Tithing doesn't save you. Just because you're giving money to the church doesn't mean you're saved. So how can anyone be saved? Two things, faith and repentance. But church, what kind of faith and repentance is the one that actually saves you? Because I feel like in churches, we use those words all the time, right? We throw around faith and repentance all the time. These are Christianese words. But I'm convinced a lot of times we don't recognize what these two words actually mean, right? So what does the words faith and repentance actually mean? And in the mid-1900s, right, that was the question that the modern theologian Karl Barth was trying to answer, right? He had an entire tour for this, went through Europe. He had one trip in George Washington University in the United States to answer the question, what kind of faith and repentance saves you? Right? So 1962, arrives in this college, 200 other theologians come in to try to interview him on this question. What kind of faith and repentance saves you? And one of those interviewers was Carl Henry, who happens to be the editor-in-chief and one of the founders of Christianity Today. Carl Henry sits down, looks at Carl's Barth, and just has one question for him. Do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Like, do you believe God actually existed and rose again from the dead? Karl Barth laughs, turns to him, teases him, and says, are you from Christianity today or from Christianity yesterday? Karl Henry says, yesterday, today, and forever. And Karl Barth made his position clear, right? And Barth said, faith just means that God is real in your heart. Right? It doesn't mean that God has to actually exist it just has to mean that he's real in your heart. It doesn't mean you have to obey God. It just has to be real in here. Right? If God is in your heart, then you are saved. And what James is going to say in today's passage is that's not faith. If God is only in your heart but not in your life, then that's not faith at all. And so what we're going to go ahead and do is look at what is the type of saving faith that James is talking about. Right? And even if you don't consciously realize it, your faith might actually be closer to Karl Barth's. Right? Your faith might be one that costs you nothing. It's only real in your heart, not real God, faith, and godly repentance. And we have three points for us today. Three points. Point number one, faith is trust in the right object. Right? Faith is trust in the right object. Point number two, faith is demonstrative. That means you could demonstrate it. Right? Faith is demonstrative. And point number three, faith is accompanied by godly repentance. Faith is accompanied by godly repentance. All right, so point number one, how do we make God our Lord through genuine faith and repentance, right? Point number one, it's faith is trust in the right objects. So let me go ahead and reread James chapter two. We're just going to look at verses 19 and 20. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. You want to evidence that faith without deeds is useless. So James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he lived his entire life, right, with Jesus. Imagine that you have a half-sibling, and it turns out that ends up being the God of the entire universe, right, that's James's life. And eventually he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem while everyone, all the disciples are going out doing frontier ministry. Um, James is holding it down in Jerusalem. And James here in this epistle or in this letter has a concern. 
right? And James has a concern here, and James's concern isn't with people who fail to attend church, right? And James's concern here isn't people who fail to love their neighbor. In fact, the man that James here is talking about is a man who knows the scriptures. In verse 19, James says, um, you believe that there is one God. What James here is referring to is the Shema, right? Jewish people would have this prayer called the Shema that they would pray in the morning and the evening that just basically summarizes who their God is. It's like basically memorizing the Apostles' Creed or the thing that we read at the end of every service, right? The man that James is concerned with has that down to a T. He knows the scriptures. He knows that there's a God, right? He knows that there is a hell, there is a heaven. He knows that there's angels and demons, he believes that there's a church and it's good to go to church. He believes that you ought to love your neighbors, that God created Adam and Eve. Like this man knows that there is sin. But there's only one problem. The man that James is concerned with thinks that believing these things is faith. You believe that there's one God. Great. So do the demons do. And not only that, the demons actually have something to show for it. The demons actually shudder. When was the last time you had an emotional response to your God? Where your God was so holy and good and you knew how beautiful he was in your heart, you actually shuddered before this holy God. The demons do. And we know exactly where the demons are going, right? They're going to hell. And so church, is your faith the kind that James is concerned with, right? And this demonic faith actually might be more common than you might think. Like, I met so many Christians who thinks that they're assured of their salvation because when they were young, they set the magic formula of the sinner's prayer. They let God into their hearts, and they believe that they're saved. Or when they were young, they went to church with their parents, therefore they're saved. Or they were baptized at one time in that one VBS retreat or whatever, and they believe they're saved. But again, just going to church doesn't save you. Saying these magic spells don't save you. Uh, salvation doesn't work through osmosis. Just like how um, going to your garage once a week doesn't make you into a car, going to church once a week doesn't make you into a Christian, right? You can't change your actual state. So being nice to your neighbors doesn't save you. Tithing doesn't save you. So what is the right kind of faith, the one that saves? Well, two things. Number one, it's faith in the right object. Faith in the right object. We're always believing in something, right? We're always acting in faith. When you wake up in the morning, you have faith that the sun will rise. You have faith that you would wake up and the bed would hold you. Um, for those of you guys who drive, you have faith that when you put your keys in the ignition, that the car will start. But you also know that these things also fail you. Your body will fail you. Your car may once in a while not run. Um, Yesterday, at the wedding, we, uh, I was getting ready to watch this game called League of Legends, right? And um, right now, we're in the World Finals. Okay, we're in the World Finals. And um, right now, there's three Chinese teams left and one Korean team left. And surprisingly enough, I'm rooting for that one Korean team. It's, it's a coincidence, right? And um, the bad thing is that it starts at midnight, every night, meaning that... Right after the wedding, I was thinking to myself, man, game one is going to start, right? I have to stay up to watch this game. And then Tony, I mean, not Tony, Paul comes up to me. And Paul was like, hey, do you have faith in your team? I'm like, yeah. He was like, 
You can go to sleep. <laughs> like, you know they're going to win, right? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And I thought to myself and how my team choked last year at the finals against the worst team ever. And then um, Peter High came over, and we ended up watching a couple of those games um, until like 2 a.m., right? Um, so faith actually comes with action. Clearly, I didn't have faith in my team. And so things fail you. That's a big point. Things fail you. Things that you have faith in fail you. Faith is only strong as its object. Let me say that again. Faith is only strong as its object. But God calls you to commit to the most reliable person in all of creation. He asks you to commit to himself. And he will never fail. If you have faith in him, he will never fail you. Right? And number two, second trait of faith. Faith is not only trust in the right objects, but it's also accompanied by trust. Right? Faith is more than just professing beliefs, but it's also trusting in that object. Honestly, more than you even trust yourself or your circumstances. Uh, let me give an illustration for this. If you guys have been watching Netflix, there's a documentary that came out about Diana Nyad. And Diana was the very first person to swim from Florida to Cuba, right? She swam from Florida to Cuba. That's over 110 miles, nonstop, without a shark cage. And she did this when she was 60, right? She tried four times over 30 years, and she failed four times, right? And the fourth attempt she tried, it was in the middle of the night that she was swimming, and she swam into a pool of jellyfish that paralyzed her so badly that she couldn't continue, right? So she gives up, um, she gives a fifth try, it's the last night, right? She's exhausted. She's tired. She doesn't think that she's going to make it. And then her coach comes up to her and says, hey, I did the math. You're going to make it. I know you can make it. You just need to finish out this one last night. And she listened to it, and she finished that race, right? It was listening to that voice of her coach that she was managing, or she managed to complete that swim, right? It took her 53 hours, five tries, and at the end, her lips were swollen, her hands were bleached white and deeply wrinkled, and her legs were barely able to support her after the 110 miles she swam. But she trusted in that voice and she finished. Trust is when it actually costs you something, right? It's when you actually act your life orienting around that thing you believe in. And so trust is when you keep going because you trust in that voice. Like Nayad kept going because she trusted in her coach. A true Christian is ready to sacrifice and do things they normally wouldn't do because they trust in Christ's voice. And where do we hear God's word the most clearly, his voice the most clearly? It's through the scriptures. And so church, when was the last time your faith in God actually cost you something? Where you actually had to trust him? See, I hear all the time about people who would say they would die for Christ. But at the same time, they're not able to give up their Sunday mornings for him. If your desire always trumps God's, then who really are you trusting? Right? If your desire always comes before what scriptures are saying, then who really is your God? Because if you want a relationship with your Savior, then you have to not only accept him into your heart, but you have to also make him the Lord of your heart. We can't have a relationship with him that's partial. We have to trust in him. We have to trust in the finished work of Christ. All right, so number one, 
a true Christian, right, has faith in the right object. And point number two, faith is demonstrative. Faith is demonstrative. Let me go ahead and reread James chapter 2, verses 21 to the end of 26. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so without faith without deeds is dead. So how does this faith, right, trust in the right objects, um, how does that faith show itself in the Christian life? Right? How do we know the symptoms that this is real in your life? Well, the Christian actually orients this life with this truth in mind. It can be demonstrated. If you want a relationship with our God, then our trust can't be just real in our hearts. It has to be real in your lives. Um, Francis Chan gave a really great example about this in the past. Um, he talked about telling his daughter to clean her room, right? So Francis Chan is telling his daughter, clean your room. And he goes out, goes to work, does something else comes back and he asks his daughter, did you clean your room? And then she says, well, actually, I memorized exactly what you said. You told me to clean my room, right? In fact, I even learned it in Greek. I learned it in Hebrew. Just memorized all of that, right? In fact, on Fridays, we gather together with all my friends and we talk about how we could see this in our lives, about cleaning your room, right? We talk about our applications and things that we can see in that phrase. In fact, on summers, we go to a cabin for three days, and we all just talk about cleaning our room. And there's different ways that we can live that out. And then he asks, well, did you actually clean your room? And she says, no. So if you actually have faith in your God, it should be able to be demonstrated. It should be real. And James here gives us two examples of what he means by that. Right? First is through Abraham, and the second is through Rahab. Right, first is through Abraham and what he did through Isaac in Jap- uh, Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham um, at this point in time, he's like past 100, and he's waited the last like 25 years for a son. Right? Um, probably further than that, but that's when he was received the promise. And so he waited decades for a son, praying, believing in God's promise for a child, and then God finally gives it to him. Right? Past 100, miracle actually receives the son. Right after he gets that son, a couple years later, God says, good, now give him back to me. And so in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is commanded by God to bring Isaac up to the mountain and to sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys. He obeys for two reasons. First, he knows his God. He knows that God has promised him a son, and our God does not break his promises. In fact, if we read through Hebrews, we find out that God, I mean, Abraham actually thought that God would resurrect Isaac after killing him, much like how Jesus was resurrected. And so we see even from his language that Abraham had this in mind, right? In Genesis 22, 5, it reads, Abraham said, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey 
while I and the boy go over there, we will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. He knew his God. And second, Abraham obeyed because he trusted in his God, right? So Abraham takes his son Isaac, goes up the mountain, and um, keep in mind, this is a willing sacrifice. It's not like Isaac was turning to his dad and was like, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, ha-ha, it's, it's you, right? And then just puts him up and then kills him, right? Um, Isaac, at this point in time, is the one carrying the wood. Meaning what? Meaning Isaac is probably around the age of 18 to 25. And if you're 18 to 25, you can take a guy who's 100, Okay, like if there's a 100-year-old versus an 18 to 25-year-old, chances are I'm putting my money that the 18 to 25-year-old is going to win the fight. And so this is done willingly, much like how Christ gave his life willingly. And so they're up in the mountain. Abraham takes the wood. He's about to sacrifice Isaac. And then God stops him and gives him a ram. And so how does this demonstrate faith? It demonstrates faith because Abraham didn't understand Right? Abraham didn't know why God was asking him to give up what was the most precious in his heart. But he obeyed anyway. He trusted that the God of the scriptures was good. He knew his God. He trusted this God more than he even trusted himself. More than he trusted his circumstances. Right? He saw this trial and he knew that his good God would lead him out. Church, what is it that you treasure the most in your heart? Is it your 401k? Is it your salary? Is it your reputation? Is it your SO? Is it your family? Is it your future? Is it your friends? If God asked you to give that up, would you obey? And if you can't give that up, perhaps that's your actual God. But if you know your God is good, that he saw you at your worst, and he still washed your feet and caused you worth it, then maybe you can trust in this God. That the hands that were nailed to the cross for your sins is the hand that's leading you out of your trial. And this God does not break his promises. So maybe you could trust in this God more than your worldly possessions because he is worthy. Dude, this air is killing me. All right, the second example that James gives us is through Rahab. Right, gives us this through Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Right? If we think back to Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, we have Joshua sending two spies into the enemy city, Jericho. And these two spies find refuge in Rahab, a prostitute's house. And the king of Jericho finds out about this, tells Rahab, hey, I heard you got two guys in there. Um, that's from the enemy camp. Go ahead and bring them to me. Keep in mind, the king of Jericho is her king. This is her upbringing. This is everything that she believes in. This is her culture. This is her way of life. And she still hides the two spies. And she keeps them. Because, why? Because she heard. We later on see in the roof her talking to the spies and explaining why she hit them. And it's because she heard a song, right? Literally the reasons that she gives mirrors Exodus 15 perfectly. Right? It mirrors the song of Moses and Miriam. What does that mean? It means somewhere along the line, Rahab has heard the song of Moses and Miriam, saw how good this God was, and believed.
to ourselves, if this God can bring down a superpower like Egypt, then this God is probably stronger than Jericho. Honestly, she probably trusted in this God, Yahweh, more than a lot of the Israelites did. Um, she trusted in this God so much, she was willing to give up her everything, her way of life, her culture. It kind of reminds me of a book. Um, it used to be a required reading back in high school. I don't think anyone really reads it today. Um, it's called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, we have a main character named Christian. Right, Christian. And he lives and he was born in a city called the City of Destruction. Right? And there's this man named Evangelist that comes in and tells him the gospel. Like, if you thought C.S. Lewis was obvious with his Christian allegory and imagery, like this guy has him beat. Right? You have a lion, he's probably Jesus. This guy literally called his main character Christian. Right? It should be pretty clear right, what he's trying to say. And in Paul Bunyan's, I mean, in John Bunyan's story, what we have is the main character, Christian. He's running away from the city of destruction. All his friends and family are saying, ignore that message, stay, stay. And he has to put his ears, hands in his ears and run out screaming, life, life, eternal life. So how does Rahab show faith? In the same way, like Christian, she shows sacrifice. Right? Her faith wasn't just a verbal profession. She gave up everything for this faith. She trusted in him above herself. And she was saved through her faith in the right object, Jesus Christ. And so church, are you willing to go against your culture, what social media, what the world says is wisdom, in order to obey Christ? Are you willing to be ridiculed and slandered for your faith? Right? Because it actually costs you something. In John 15, verses 18 to 19, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that the world hated me first. If you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of this world. That is why the world hates you. So if you're being honest, what society, what uh, the world may say is good and evil, like that changes like the wind. Right. What was good 50 years ago is not good today. And what is good today will not be good 50 years from now. Right. There's practices that we held 100 years ago that is condemned today. And if there's anything we see from history is that morality, well, what society says is the expression of good and bad changes all the time. But the Bible stays the same. Ever since the beginning of the time, the Bible had very clear stances on what good and bad is. And what Rahab faced in the past, what the disciples have faced, that's true for you today. The world will hate you. And church, I know that it's tempting to follow with what the culture says. But are you still willing to trust in Jesus even when it goes against what your boss may tell you that's against Christianity, what influencers might tell you, what society might tell you? If it goes against God's word, will you still trust in his voice? In spite of all the competing voices, that are fighting for your attention, would you be able to identify Christ's voice, your shepherd's voice, and follow him? Right, so how do you know that you're a Christian? What is our response? Number one, it's faith and trust in the right objects. Number two, your faith is demonstrative. Last and final point, your faith is accompanied by godly repentance. Let me say that again. Your faith is accompanied by godly repentance. 
Let's go ahead and read 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to the end of 12. This is Paul writing, and he reads, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proven yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you can see for yourself how devoted to us you are. All right, so how do we enter into the uh, rhythm of relationship with God? How do we enter this relationship with our creator? Right? The distinguishing mark of whether someone is a Christian Right, it's not whether they attend church or do good things. It's whether they have faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith must always be accompanied by godly repentance. A Christian is one who has repented of their sins. But I feel like oftentimes we see this idea lightly. Like we don't have the right idea of what repentance is. And so let's look with what Paul is saying here in this passage. He says repentance isn't just worldly sorrow. Right? What that means is repentance isn't just sorrow for the consequences of sin. There's a difference between expressing true sorrow for sin and expressing sorrow just because you got caught. Repentance also isn't just despair. It's okay for us to feel the weight of our sins, but when we start to think that we're beyond help, then our tears can actually block us from real accountability and change. Godly repentance occurs when we actually turn and redirect ourselves from the sin that we once loved. Where our hearts, that sin we once loved, becomes sin that we now hate. Right? Thomas Watson says that repentance has come in six points. Six points. And it's, number one, you have a true sight of sin. You actually see the sin for what it is. You hate it. Number two, true sorrow for sin. You're not just sad because you got caught. Right? You're not sad because you broke God's rules, but you're sad because you broke God's heart. Number three, true confession for sin. Number four, true shame for sin. Number five, true hatred for sin. And number six, true turning from sin. Thomas Watson says if any of these things are left out, then repentance loses its virtue. And I think what Thomas Watson here understands is that repentance requires the turning of our lives. It's not just a profession of our lips, but it's a lifestyle. True repentance grieves sin genuinely. And you might be thinking, well, Kevin, like, what if I repent about the same things over and over? Like, I'm always confessing, God, I'm sorry for watching pornography. I'm sorry for um, cutting corners when I shouldn't have. Well, church, we're going to fall into a variety of sins. And that's the reality of living in this fallen world. But we still feel the effects of alienation, right? That Paul talked about last week. 
But true repentance is genuinely fighting the battle and getting back up. Sorry, this is killing me. All right, so John Piper talks about worldly sorrow like this, right? The wrong type of repentance. This is how John Piper puts it. There's a type of confession that at one level is expressing guilt and sorrow for sinning. But underneath, there's a quiet assumption that the sin is going to happen again. Probably before the week is out. In other words, this kind of confession is very superficial. You feel bad about them, but you've surrendered to their inevitability. So church, let me ask you, have you repented? Does your repentance sound like worldly sorrow? Where you quietly know you're going to fall into this sin again, you're just saying sorry for the sake of saying sorry? You feel guilt, you feel bad about it. There's no turning. There's no action. You've quietly surrendered. There's no grieving for that sin. In fact, in your heart, you actually desire and love that sin. And church, can I tell you, that's not repentance. Repentance isn't just saying sorry. Right? This is how John Piper describes godly repentance. The other kind of confession is that you express guilt and sorrow for sinning just like the first kind. But your hatred for sin is so real that you have every intention as you confess on making war on that sin tonight, this weekend. You aim by the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat it. You're going to seek out whatever ways are going to help you to put this sin to death. You're going to rob the sin of its power. That's the plan. There's no hypocrisy. See, Christians should be the ones that denounce the sins the hardest. Like, not just the sins that we see in culture, but the ones that we know are true in our own hearts. Because we know the sins that hide in our hearts. We should be the first to echo the words of Paul when he says that we're the chief of sinners, or he's the chief of sinners. And so if you're stuck in the trap of sin, and you're just thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm going to look at porn at some website again. I'm going to overdo it with alcohol again or drugs. I'm going to avoid confronting my colleagues and their dishonesty again. I'm going to gossip again, or et cetera, X, Y, and Z. What you need to do is lean towards godly repentance, right? Look again how Paul describes godly sorrow in verse 11, right? He says, godly sorrow produces earnestness, right? What eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice son. At every point, you have proven yourself to be innocent in this manner. By innocent, Paul's not saying that we're perfect. Right? That's not the thing. Like Christians are not perfect. We're going to sin. The difference is that a repenting Christian is doing everything they can. It's their attitude to turn away from that sin. Right? There's, this, there's this sense of desperation, wanting to run away from that sin and cling on to Christ. Like godly repentance is going to war with this sin, the full intention of turning away from that sin. Right? It's full intention to bring that sin to light, to look for accountability, to take it with the gravity that it deserves. Right? Church, sin isn't tame or domestic. Right? Even the smallest sin screamed for your death penalty. Even the smallest sin was only quenched by the death of your Savior. And so, see, when we minimize the effects of sin in our lives, we try to brush them away saying, yeah, everyone does it, or these are the respectable sins. What we're doing is we're minimizing the work that Christ had to accomplish in order to, for us to be saved. And so church, do you have any sins that you're just letting ride? 
then can I say Christ is calling you towards repentance? And you need to run to him desperately. If you want a relationship with Christ, then you have to go further than just saying, yeah, I know there's a God. You have to actually do something about it. You have to repent and put your trust in him. A true Christian responds with true, constant, consistent repentance. Right? If someone comes to church on a Sunday, does not repent of their sins, lives their entire week like a non-believer, then they should not have an ounce of assurance in their hearts that they're saved. But if you have repented from your sins that have gripped your heart and clinged onto Christ, and you're still struggling, even with the same sins, but you're still struggling and you're fighting, then one comforts you to keep the fight. Or if you're concerned that your sins are too constant or deep to repent from, I want to assure you that there's no sin that can't be forgiven by Christ. Right? Tim Keller says this about the gospel. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we've ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Or how Richard Sips puts it, there's more mercy and grace in him than there's sin in us. And so when you feel the weight of your sins, the answer isn't to just normalize it or deny it or forget about it, but it's to trust in something outside of yourself. Right? The best example for godly versus worldly sorrow is just Judas, uh, Judas and Peter. Right? Judas and Peter. They both committed the same sin of forsaking Christ. And Judas' sin wasn't something that was so far that he couldn't have repented from. Right? The difference was Judas took the sin upon himself and he was crushed by the weight and he killed himself. While Peter ran to Christ. Right? And when Peter came to Christ, Jesus says, do you love me? Three times. Right? Because Peter forsaked him three times. And so as you sin, what Jesus is asking you is, do you love me? Do you repent? Do you want to turn from this sin? Every time there's forgiveness in the foot of the cross. And so by dying on the cross, Jesus provides for us a real and eternal avenue for forgiveness. He takes the worst evils we've ever done and applies even deeper and greater grace. And so in light of the sin and the gospel, what is the proper response in order to be in a relationship with God? It's genuine faith in Christ and godly repentance. And church, this doesn't happen because of obligation. This isn't going to happen because I'm preaching to you or Tony's preaching to you or Paul's preaching to you. This is only going to happen when you love Christ. Love turns obedience from a duty to a delight. We're enticed because Jesus loves us, and that love draws us close to him. That's what allows us to sing with Doddridge when he wrote, Grace first wrote my name in God's eternal book. It was grace that gave me the lamb that took all my sorrows. It was grace that taught my soul to pray and my pardoning love to know. It was grace that kept me to this day, and he will not let me go. And so church, if we're to be members of TLC, let us be members, let us be Christians that does not minimize sin. That shows a type of faith that trusts in him, that's actually active, it demonstrates itself in our lives, it costs us something. That it goes out to look, to seek others who might be stuck in sin and walk with them in accountability. That comes on with even deeper, greater grace. Where when we ask, how are your weeks going, we can actually be honest about how our weeks are going. Right? We can be honest about our sins and walk with others towards repentance. Where we can rejoice in the beauty of the one that we placed our faith in. 
right? In the beginning of the sermon, I talked about Karl Barth. I talked about for Karl Barth, faith was just being real in his heart and not in his life. And later on in his life, this would translate to his faith, his life, right? Because he compromised in his understanding of faith, he would eventually compromise in his morality, in his walk. Karl Barth would eventually end his life falling into adultery. He has his wife and his mistress. He knew that that was sin and he could not let them go. Partial faith is not faith at all. And partial faith leads to false repentance. So church, if we want a relationship with Christ, if we want a godly relationship with one another, if we want to fight against that alienation, we desperately need genuine faith in Jesus Christ and we need godly repentance. Let's pray. Father, we come to you confessing that oftentimes our hearts are calloused, that we don't see sin for what it is, that we normalize it, we try to ignore it, we don't bring them to you. We're more comfortable hiding our sins in the darkness, never confessing. But pray, Lord, that you may convict us, that you may give us the power through your Holy Spirit to bring these sins to you, that we may place faith not in ourselves, not in one another, but on the only thing that won't let us down, which is you, Lord. Help us to have faith in you. Help us to have trust in you, Lord. If there's anyone here that does not have trust in you, that have not accepted the gospel in their hearts, in their lives, that have not accepted you as Lord, that have not turned away from their sins, and I pray, Lord, that you may convict them, that they may have a curiosity to ask any of the Christians here why we believe in this God, why we believe in this God that we're willing to give up anything for. Why is he more worth it than all the treasures in this world? Help us to profess you, Lord, not with just our words, but with our lives. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.